Hey, Dink! Hey, gang! Welcome to it Dennis in the News. This is your backstage I've been off for, for two weeks. Politics and education Fresh in the dental world. The rock legends I'm Bruce. Dr. Jeff Horowitz. And then last With me is Dr. Jennifer Merrill. You know where it is, Jamie. And Dr. Chicago Midwinter Dental Media. We are all practicing dentists. We are all Academy educators. Media. And we are all business uh, It's been about two weeks Our away to bring from all of you in the know. away from just being a normal routine. But, man, glad to be back. This is Dennis in the know. This is our hump day happy hour. And this is your backstage pass to current trends, politics, and education in the dental world. It's live. And tonight it's over a mixed beverage. Uh, usually, you know, I'm doing the wine thing, but it's been that kind of a couple of days where I thought I deserved a mixed toddy. As you know, I do this show with some of my best friends in the entire world, Dr. Jennifer Bell and Dr. Chad Duplantis. We are all practicing dentists. We are all business owners and we are all educators. And guess what our job is? Do you guys know what our job is? To bring it's to bring all, all of, you of you in the know. In the know. <laughs> in the know. Hey guys, long time hey, no hey, see. Hey. Long time no see. Long yeah, time. Yeah, no we see. spent a lot of time. Could totally get used to seeing you guys every single day. We did. How we did have a that? fun time. I think there's a term for when the two of us, at least the these two, are together. It's kind of a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like a kid in a candy store. Yeah, and we we have too great of a guest to to leave him waiting in the wings. So, um, I'll, please allow me to to just take a minute to introduce, um, really, just a, a an incredible guy, a a true friend and mentor in dentistry. I got to know him um, when I was studying at the uh, at the Piper Clinic and in the Piper Study Club. And Jim helped run that at one point. And, um, you know, he's just such a such a boots on the ground kind of dentist. And, you know, where a lot of times uh, at at the Piper Center, sometimes some of these concepts were really kind of out there, especially coming from some of the training that I had had and trying to reconcile some of my old training and and this new way of thinking you know, a lot of times it just came down to let's have a beer and talk, Jim, or can I call you and can you look at my scan and and let's talk some real world dentistry because my brain isn't quite as big as Mark Piper's. So I need to see how do we really put this together. And and Jim was he's an amazing teacher, as I said, an amazing friend. Um, he's now resident faculty at Spear. He runs his own study club at TMJ. He has a practice in uh, Downers Grove, Illinois, in the Chicagoland area. And I am so happy to have our great friend, Jim McKee, back on the show. How you doing, Jim? I'm wonderful, Jeff. I'm terribly humbled by your very nice introduction. Thank you so much. It's great to be back on with you guys. Yeah, put the check in the mail. Please. I already set it up. <laughs> well, Jim's going to talk to us today about pops and clicks, which I'm going to try not to, to interfere too much. But this is really hard when we talk about sleep 
or TMJ or any of these functional issues for me to keep my mouth shut. But what I'd really like to do never, is I don't out. think I've ever seen that happen, Jeff. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, why don't we do this? I'm going to toss it over to you, Jim. And then I'd really like, um, because I, I love the title that you put out there, Pops and Clicks. How many of our patients come in with that? Like all of them, right? Like, you know, a, a very high majority of our patients have had what they have called TMJ symptoms or have pops or clicks. Are they innocent? Is it something we should be paying attention to? So I think this is going to be really great information for all of you out there who are watching or in the future listening. So um, Jim, tell tell us what the inspiration for that title is. Obviously, uh, you know, I think you put on a program with that title. Um, what's the inspiration for the title? And just give us some background Well, you know, the title kind of comes from questions that I had when I was a young dentist, Um, because I would see patients who would come in and they would click and pop. And some of them had no problems and some had pretty significant problems. And I couldn't really tell the difference between which ones I should be concerned about or which ones I shouldn't even think about. Besides that, I had no idea what to do with them. <laughs> you know, I mean, we were told to make splints. Splints would help sometimes. Splints wouldn't help a lot of the time, though. But these were in the early years, and I kind of plugged along. And then I met Pete Dawson. And Pete Dawson was really the first dentist who started to put the pieces together for me in terms of how the teeth relate to the joints. Because that was a concept that I had really no thinking about. I was basically a toothpaste dentist. And when I started to make that connection, it seems like the restorative dentistry got a little more predictable. So dentistry became a little bit more fun. You know, you talked about the problems that dentists have with mental health issues in the beginning of the show. This is a hard profession. Mm-hmm. And, and I really have to credit Pete and Mark Piper and the guys that really took some of the mystery out of it. And I guess that's kind of how this title came about is because what I'm hoping to do is take some of the mystery out of that, because really there's a very logical way to think about this. You know, it seems like we've never been able to, to kind of put our, our hands around this and and understand it. Um, And as a result, we basically just push it away. So if we can understand which are the ones that maybe we should think about or which are the ones that we don't really have to be as concerned about, then what it does, if we borrow something from John Coyce, it allows us now to start risk profiling. Is this a green case? Is this a yellow case? Is this a red case? And all of a sudden now my restorative decisions become a little more predictable because if I have a foundation that's compromised at the back end of the system, I can start to tell the patient that we may have issues at the front end of the system. So ultimately, when we talk about clicks and pops, I think the first thing to understand is that a joint clicks, there's two reasons a joint will click. The first one, and this is the outlier, is when some opens really, really, really wide and they click at like 45, 48 millimeters. And really what they're doing is they're coming off the eminence and they're subluxing their joints. 
that happens, but it's a pretty rare occurrence. Let's put that to the side. The rest of the clicks and pops that we all see every day are the result of a ligament injury. So the first domino that falls in this discussion is a soft tissue domino. And when the ligaments start to come off, does it come off on both sides? Is it a complete discal herniation? Or is it a partial herniation? Now, our training, if we go back and listen to the literature, talks about a disc displacement with reduction or a disc displacement without reduction. But it doesn't talk about where the dislocation occurs. Does that make sense? So if we look at anatomy, really, I've really started to think more about occlusion is really about force distribution than anything. The muscles are positioned between the teeth and the joints. Force is distributed between the teeth and the joints. At the tooth end, we try and have even contact all the way around, and we try to make sure the front teeth contact and the back teeth separate. That's what we've always been taught. We're going to come back to that concept in a little bit and say there are some cases where maybe it might not be a bad idea to rethink that concept. But for now, let's assume that. So at the joint end, basically now we want a soft tissue disc to protect the bone when the load's applied at the joint end. If the disc is there, we can pretty much do anything we want. If the disc is there, here's the other thing. The likelihood of us having a malocclusion decreases. On the other hand, if the disc is not there, then we have the potential for a change in vertical dimension at the joint level. And interestingly enough, when we talk about vertical dimension, it's almost always talked about at the tooth level, right? Vertical dimension at the joint level is comprised of soft tissue disc support and then any bony changes you may see. So if we lose the disc, it's approximately two millimeters. If the condyle moves up, the lower anterior teeth move back, and all of a sudden now, the class one patient is really the class two patient if you put them on an anterior deprogrammer, if you put them on a Lucia jig, if you do by manual. Now, if we don't check it, we're assuming that it's a class one occlusion. Now, whether that patient clicks or pops really isn't the issue because so many times what will happen is sometimes they'll click but not for very long. So when we talk about clicks or pops, let's try to organize it into is it clicking or popping at the lateral pole or is it clicking and popping at the medial pole? So that would be the first decision tree. And if the patient comes in with a history of a 60-year-old man who's clicked for 30 years, doesn't have any bite discrepancies, that all points to a disc displacement at the lateral pole with the medial pole still maintaining the vertical dimension and the load-bearing abilities. Does that make sense? So if I hear that history, I'm thinking not a big deal. Okay. But the issue is we tend to make it about pain 
I think we can get more out of looking at the bite and understanding the history because pain, pain's a misnomer. Let's go to the 12 year old female now who comes in with the class two and is clicking. You know, the problem is they generally don't hurt till they get into their teen years. So if we make it about pain, we miss the early cases. The clicks that matter really a lot to me are in the growing patients. Jeff Rouse says kids shouldn't snore. I'm going to tell you kids shouldn't click. If, if a growing patient is clicking, it should warrant further investigation. And the easiest screening tool we have, as Mark Piper talked about, Jeff, for years when you and I were together with him, is simply looking at the occlusion when the joint's in a fully seated position. You'll notice I didn't say centric relation because that implies that a disc is there. All we're doing is we're checking the bite from a skeletal position. And if we're uncoupled greater than the thickness of the disc, two millimeters, the likelihood increases that we've lost the disc at the medial pole. Now, that may be someone who doesn't hurt in his clicking, but to me, that's a far more long-term serious problem than the 60-year-old guy who's been clicking for 35 years with no problems. And I think that's where we get hung up in dentistry because we see some people have clicks that don't have any problems. We have other people that clicks that do have problems. And unless really we can look at the anatomy, most of us can't unless we image. We don't know what the title came from and try and understand clicks and the pops that we may need to be thinking more about. Now, to further tie that to airway, here's the connection between those. Ultimately, the earlier the disc comes off in life, the more likely we are to have an interruption of growth in the mandible, but not only the mandible, and this doesn't get talked enough about, in my opinion, the maxilla as well. We've made joints about the mandible. Not true. If you look at the research, if you look at clinical CT scans, the maxilla doesn't project as well on the injured side. So I don't think the joint problem is restricted to mandibular development. I think it's the whole side that is having a problem developing. And, you know, Jeff Rouse and I did a webinar. Are we treating the same patient? Because really what's happening is Jeff came at it from the airway perspective. I came at it from the joint perspective and ultimately meet in the middle. And what you find out is that most of these patients have both things going on. You know what I mean? Hey, Dinks podcast listeners. You love the sound, but you miss seeing our lovely faces. Be sure and join us on our weekly Facebook Live or on our YouTube channel at Dentist in the Know. We'd love to have you subscribe and be with us at all times, everywhere. I think you said two really important things, Jim, that, that I'd like for all of our listeners and, and viewers to really take hold of. And from a clinical perspective, the first thing that you said is that one of the first things that you will notice in someone with some type of a joint discrepancy is going to be a malocclusion that maybe can't otherwise be explained 
or a malocclusion that exists that is a greater thickness or, or greater distance than the thickness of the disc. So when you see these large class twos, when you see um, a class two on one side, class one on the other, uneven growth, things like that, that should really be a, a telltale sign to you that, hey, maybe this is not a bite problem, but really a foundational problem. A the second thing yeah. that you said that I think is so important is, is how we need to be catching this in kids while they're growing and before adolescence, ideally, is the time to catch these kids. So this thought process of don't get into interceptive ortho, I've heard the argument all different ways. We need to be catching these joint discrepancies and airway discrepancies at or before adolescence. As soon as you see that interruption in growth, as soon as you see that change in skeletal pattern, the change in occlusion, or start hearing the noises in a growing child, we really need to to intervene. I just I wanted to make sure that the listeners really took that away because it, it it's just such a key point to what you're saying. Can, you know, go, go ahead, Jennifer. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, can we dive into that more about what yep. you know if. We have pediatric patients that come in, we identify a pop, a click, or some type of uh, malocclusion or skeletal asymmetries. What's the, as a general practitioner, what's my algorithm now to diagnose, to refer, to evaluate? You know, where do I go from here? It's not my area of expertise, and I don't have a Piper doctor somewhere in my close proximity. So what do I do to help these patients? Well... The easiest thing to help the patients, you know, I heard something a long time stuck with me. I can't remember where I heard it. Examination, diagnosis, treatment. And we kind of jump to treatment because we want to fix and help people. They need a diagnosis first. So someone has to look at the anatomy to make decisions about treatment whether that's you, whether that's someone in your community, whether they have to travel to get that, which is less desirable, someone has to do it. Now, my strong advice, especially to dentists who are looking to build a practice, this is by far the fastest way to build a high-quality practice and bring patients into your practice who are looking for answers you had talked before about fee-for-service who are willing to have a fee-for-service fee structure. And I will tell you that most of the time, if restorative work needs to be done, the dentist doesn't want to do it. So from a practice management perspective, if we can learn to diagnose these types of cases, buckle up because there's going to be a lot of patients calling your practice. But in answer to your question about the 12-year-old, someone has to do it. The problem is usually what we do is we ship them off to the orthodontist. And to be completely honest, what we're doing is we're setting up the orthodontist for failure. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not their practice model to all of a sudden now bring someone in and diagnose joints because then if they do that, they're going to have to charge for it then they're that much more expensive than the average orthodontist down the street from them. 
And that gets into a big practice management issue for them. My suggestion is that diagnostic work be done in the restorative dentist office before the referral is made. You know, think about it. The orthodontist is only going to see the patient for two years if they're growing. You know, I see patients who had ortho 25 years ago that I'm still taking care of problems that I missed when I was early and the orthodontist missed them too. Most of them were class twos, to be honest with you. So I'm thinking back. If I had it to do over again, I would have diagnosed the cases and then sent them to the orthodontist. So I don't know how to answer your question exactly in terms of what your algorithm is, but I think the first algorithm step is to decide whether to image or not image. That's the first fork in the road. So if generally most joint situations will present one of two ways. Something hurts or something doesn't fit. It's pretty much it. And the something doesn't fit is usually the class two occlusion, the asymmetric mandible, something skeletally or dentally doesn't fit. And that's almost always because the disc came off, growth was interrupted, and now the front end doesn't fit. So imaging, I always say imaging shall set you free. Because once you see the anatomy, there's no discussion anymore. And it becomes such a benefit for the dentist in your community to have someone you like that. Because before now, the orthodontist, when the next orthodontist, class two patient the orthodontist gets, guess what they're doing? Someone needs to diagnose those cases. So... If you diagnose the 12-year-old, then the question becomes, what do you do? So one of the parts of the diagnosis is the MRI. And one of the advantages of MRI, especially in a growing patient, it has no radiation. So we can take it at multiple positions and evaluate how the disc fits on the bone. So we'll take it and fully seated. If it fits there, that's a normal joint. You can build the occlusion there. If it doesn't, but then it fits at maximum intercuspation, then maybe the 12-year-old is sent to the orthodontist with the instructions of don't seat the joints, build an MIP. If it doesn't fit an MIP, but it does in a class one canine position where you might build a functional, you can send it now to the orthodontist and say, okay, let's try a functional here. We've got a displaced disc. But if we can get back underneath there at this position and hold it, let's see how growth does. No promises, but at least we're in the ballpark. If it doesn't, it, IE, it incise a ledge, but finally when you open it does, you're not going to build it all the way open, so then you're going to have a decision. The next fork in the road there is, do we live off the disc or do I do something at the joint level to change the anatomy at the disc, meaning either repair the disc or replace the disc? And that walks through basically the treatment planning discussion. That's assuming the hard tissue is still good. You know, the problem in the growing patient, the 12-year-old you mentioned, is that many times those ramus lengths become short. And instead of growing out to 65 millimeters, there may be 52, 53. Those are the real retronathic maxillas. 
that then come to see Dr. Horowitz because they have sleep issues because they're not projected out far enough and they've got the collapsed airway and they didn't ground the maxillary. So now they have a deviated septum. So they have na- they have airflow limitations at the front end, in the middle, and they've got joint issues. That, that's the case. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the hard part in the pediatric patient to at least I found with sleep even is if it's not symptomatic or, you know, it's, it's getting the patients to buy in to the need for treatment before it becomes the problem, as opposed to be being reactionary once it becomes a problem. Um, And that, you know, that's for another day, another topic on how we motivate patients to seek treatment. But you know, that's, that's always, I think, I think, I think we have to make them understand that if what I, when you're calling treatment, I'm calling diagnosis. Yeah. Fair. That if we don't get diagnosis, all I can do is guess. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'll do the best I can guessing, but it's a guess. And if that, I think helps them, move off the needle a little bit. Yeah. And you made another great point too, Jim, is that, you know, one of the the important parts, you know, you said exam, diagnosis, treatment. And when it comes to the, to the TMJ, we just can't see those soft tissue structures without an MRI. And it's incredible how, whether it's in our training or, or it's, it's just, you know, what we think of as compassion and thinking about our patients' pocketbooks. Oh, why would I get an M? Why would I make them do an MRI? That's a thousand dollars or, or $1,200. And, and how often have we heard that from other colleagues, right? That have said, you don't need an MRI, get a CBCT, which can give us an idea about what the disc has done but it certainly can't tell us anything about the condition of the disc or whether it's, you know, medial or, or, you know, whether it's out to the lateral. And, and so I think one of the mindsets that we need to get over in dentistry is that we need to do whatever tests we need to do to get to that accurate diagnosis before we get to treatment and and really doing something like this and and making a diagnosis the occlusion is the first hint the exam the history are all great hints but really it's that mri that that tells us where is that disc living you know in in different condylar positions and then we need that to make that next decision two things first of all there were clicking joints that didn't hurt, so therefore they didn't need to be imaged because we made this about pain. You know, Mark Piper said a long time ago, it's not about pain, it's about structure. It's not about pain, it's about structure. Occlusion starts at the joint level. The teeth are just along for the ride. The second thing is, as it said, MRIs won't change your treatment plan. We just talked about a 12-year-old that had different treatment plans based upon her disposition. Here's the other thing, on a CBCT in a growing patient, you're going to miss it because you won't see the bone defect. Right. That Because generally they don't have that yet. Now, they may not be growing well, but you may be able to pick that up. Here's the other thing. 
most CBCTs are taken in maximum intercuspation. <laughs> That's the other point is what position were they in? Exactly. CBCT, if you want to try to assess disc position from a CBCT, it's best if the CBCT is taken in a fully seated position. That will allow you to see if the disc, well, excuse me, if the condyle is posterior, then you infer that the disc is anterior. How do you recommend uh, ensuring that they're in uh, a fully seated position prior to taking the CBCT? We send them, Chad, with three bite records. Okay. And it's just a little uh, AccuFlow injectable bite record in fully seated, in edge to edge, or class one if it's a growing patient where you build a functional, and then open with a styrofoam bite block. <laughs> and basically, they're just mouth props. Okay. And that's how we send it. So I, I do have a question. Jim, I think you, uh, excuse me one second, no, Jim. Go I ahead, think Jeff, Chad whatever. was asking about for the CBCT, how okay. do you make sure that they're in fully seated condylar position? Say CBCT. It's taken to the initial point of contact and then it's held. Hey, Jeff. Apparently, it's come to our attention that you and I suck at the news. Yeah, Chad, um, I've actually kind of known that for a while. And and that's why what we've had to do is give people more of what they really deserve, which is more JB. So we actually have a segment now called News on the Go with Dennis in the Know. In fact, I like the idea of JB's News on the Go with Dennis in the Know. So stay tuned for that. It's its own podcast. I'm really excited about it. And guess what? There's no Chad and Jeff. So so you're 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 doing that. You're making sure that they're in that that's fully seated position, taking a bite registration and sending them for the CBCT with a bite registration at that position. Exactly. Right. One of the things I'd like to ask you, and you could send it if you don't mind doing so to Jeff and JB and I just via email, I would love to see kind of a referral for an MRI because we all know that an MRI is going to be great, but, you know, I don't send out for MRIs. I'd love to. And and that's what I tell patients all the time. I'm not going to be able to see the full picture without an MRI. I usually send them to the local TMJ guy, but I'd love to be able to send these off for sure. and then send that imaging with them. And basically, I'll tell you, it's the protocol that Mark Piper put together is what I'm going to send. I, I've made a couple tweaks in it um, to try to see the disc better for my radiologist. Um, but it's it's an easy protocol to use. My suggestion, if you're going to start to think about getting into imaging, is find a radiologist who can, who's going to be part of your inter- interdisciplinary team. Look, think of it same as an orthodontist. Think of it same as a periodontist. Find someone who you can learn with and review cases with. Here's the reality. They're not going to know as much as you will. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't have training in this. So that's, that's part of the issue. You just have to know that going in. Um, but I will be happy to send that out. And I'll send you a picture, too, of those bite records. That would be great. And, you know, um, one of the questions that I always have, and I've learned so much from you at Spear, from from Jeff, 
from Jeff Rouse. I mean, actually, I've learned more from you and Jeff Rouse than ever Jeff Horowitz, but I'll just go ahead and throw Jeff's name in the ring anyways. But tough there's so many, so many things that I've learned over the past years. I'm kidding, Jeff. I've learned some from you. Um, Jeff Rouse, that is. Um, but there's so, so many things that I've learned over the past years as I start following this sleep and TMJ pathway I think that we have a huge disconnect in dentistry, and I apologize to anybody that I offend by saying this, but I, how do we champion orthodontists and have them become more understanding of this? I mean, I, I love my orthodontists that I work with, and they even admit, I wish I knew more about that than I did. And I, and I, I, think, and, we, I think we bring it to them, just like I said I, before. We, yeah. image, we, we work up the cases on our end and bring it to them. That's, yeah, that's I, how it's going to change. It's, it, it's it the needs, only way because it's not going to happen. It's the same with oral surgeons. It's the same with oral surgeons. They're not, we, we, it, it makes no sense for us to expect that they're going to do what we want them to do. Yeah, I, I, I just really... I get it. And I, I hear that. I just wish, I wish there was more that we could do. You know, I wish that you could go speak to every residency that there is and just, you know, get you and and Horowitz in there and, and just really help them understand, you know, what we're trying to accomplish because there, there's a disconnect and, and I hope that it will change. I've noticed that there's been a lot of change in my 24 years of practicing dentistry, and I hope that that trend continues. I just hope that it moves along at a little bit of a faster rate. I will, I will tell you confidently today, there are more dentists imaging jaw joints at any time in the past, and there are more young dentists looking at joints than they ever have in the past, too. So yeah. I, think, I think it's... I think airway is kind of dragging him into it, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yep. I think that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. I said that a long time ago that was going to happen. Because once you start taking a CBCT, you're going to see a bad joint. Sure. Hey, Dinks. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast today. Remember to rate and review your favorite podcast. Subscribe and enjoy what you like or it goes away. Yeah, it was great. I was I was lecturing to empty rooms for airway and then those got filled up. And then all of a sudden, the empty rooms that I had for TMJ started filling up after that because they realized that they didn't know anything about the joint and you can't reposition a mandible and not expect that that there's going to be no implication to the foundation. You cannot do sleep today unless you can diagnose joints. That Absolutely. I mean, no one says that out loud. I'm going to say that you can't. Oh, I, I said there was there was a large company that that wanted me to teach sleep for them, and they were teaching orthodontics and TMJ and sleep to people who knew absolutely nothing and doing it in such a poor fashion that I said, "There's no way you can't just do this. You can't give them an orthodontic." you know, an orthodontic functional appliance and have them have no background in ortho or the foundation and what they're doing when they're, when they're changing these skeletal relationships. So I, I think, um, you know, it's interesting. It, though, it, it, it is good that we've gotten here. I think what it really shows us though, is that we have deficits 
that the mandibular and maxillary level on more patients than we previously assumed. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I think is the 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 unnerving part of this whole discussion. Because, you know, the patient we just talked about all of a sudden now, you know, that's a lot of big asks for a patient. <laughs> and not everyone's going to be able to afford it. Not everyone's going to be motivated to do it. So where does that leave us? It leaves us working in a compromised foundation. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have to be able at some point to understand our risk factors so we can communicate them effectively to patients. But that's the reality of the situation. Not everyone's going to go get a three-piece LaFord, a lower double jaw. I mean, those cases aren't, I mean, I'm not saying people aren't going to do them. But, you know, it's funny. Those get talked about so much today. And I ask people, now, how many cases have you done like that? Oh, I haven't done any. Okay. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question because I know the answer to this, at least from, from my practice and having watched it. And I hope that the, the listeners and viewers really, I hope this helps you understand how much of an issue this is and that it's really not understood by a lot of the oral surgeons and the orthodontists out there. How many class two corrections have you seen completed, Jim, by orthodontists and, and God forbid with a sliding osteotomy where the joint position was left in a what I would call pathologic position or or in an improper position because they were focused on correcting the class two dentally or they did the sliding osteotomy, leaving the condylar position off of the disc. I mean, it, it, it's incredible. I mean, your wife, Lisa, does orthodontics in the office. And fortunately, she's been able to, to be along for the ride with you with the TMJ. But how many cases have you referred out in the past that you've seen them come back and the class two was corrected dentally, but they're still in a foundational crisis? I'm going to change one word that you said. You said joint position. I'm going to substitute joint condition. Absolutely. Good with that. I think the structural alteration occurs before the class two occlusion occurs. And therefore, all we're doing is chasing teeth. Here's what determines how well a class two finish is going to hold up. It's going to be the stability of the bone. The less stable the bone is, or the less the bone grows, the more difficult that it's going to be able to maintain that class two. So those are the ones that become difficult. The small condyles, the eroded condyles, the short ramus lengths, all all the same cases we're talking about in the airway world. You know what I mean? Now, I will tell you, I've been, uh, since Mark talked about class two occlusions in the late 80s is the first time I really understood why class two occlusions were more risky. I always thought it was, I was taught it was genetics. You got a bad roll of the DNA, you know, the genetic DNA dice. And wait, you were alive in the eighties. I was alive in the eighties. I was, yeah. <laughs> believe it or not. Um, 
So once I started imaging class twos, it became really apparent. The reason why they were a class two is because I originally thought they lost vertical dimension. I've changed my thinking now to think that they never achieved vertical dimension. I think most of the tougher cases we see today never got there. I don't think they grew and then broke down. I don't think they ever got there. That's what I mean. It happens earlier than we think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm convinced of it, which is the same stuff with airway, you know, but all of a sudden now you're not supposed to treat the young patient. You know, we talked about this earlier. This is the only orthopedic joint in the body that isn't treated as it's growing and it's degenerating. Yeah. And what have the radiologists said to us about the conditions of a lot of these MRI image joints that, you know, you you and I have both heard this, that a lot of radiologists say that they have never seen any other joint in the body that has such conditional problems in young people as the temporal mandibular joint. Tom Preddy is the radiologist I've used for the last 25 years. Tom's a great guy. Yeah. He, um, he will tell you without a doubt that the jaw joint is the earliest joint in the body with the severity of injuries that it has. And you generally don't see that level of injury in orthopedic joints till people are in their 50s and 60s and the rest of their joints. I think that's a that's a great place to uh, to close on. We've we've hit nine thirty, and Jim, we could sit and sip a bourbon or sip anything for that matter. I could sip water with you and do this mm-hmm. all night, and and I know everyone else listening <laughs> could do the same. Yeah. But um, on on behalf of of all the dentists in the know, we just want to say thank you for being a friend to us for for coming on again, for sharing your knowledge. And um, Jim, do you, real quick, do you want to let, let, can we give a shout out to your study club for anybody who sure. might be interested or, uh, or yeah, anything you want to tell them how to get in touch with you? Uh, Chicago study club program. I started it a couple of years ago. Um, we meet twice a year for two days, once in the fall, once in the spring in Chicago and it's restorative in joints. Um, I do it with three other dentists. Kurt Ringhofer is a dentist who practices in Orland Park, um, which is pretty close up to me in Chicago here. He's a member of the Restorative Academy. Seth Atkins is outside Dallas. Seth is a digital dentist whiz. Um, young, understands technology. And then Drew McDonald is an orthodontist um, who is cutting edge ortho in growing patients. So it's the four of us. We'll bring in speakers. We'll do days ourselves. It's a great study club. If you want more information, uh, email me at jim at mckeedds.com. I'm going to put that in the comments. Yeah, for sure. Hey, uh, Jim, you know, Jeff thanked you for being friends of our show. But as we close, I just want to thank you for being a friend to Jeff. I mean, he, he really needs that. He needs, he needs that. that warm and special touch. Yeah. So, yeah. I've, I've been called special before. Yeah. 
As, <laughs> as, as we close, though, I just want to say what an important topic. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you for enlightening us. Um, I'm going to put the email address in the comments below, and I hope that some people decide that they want to focus on the joint and the restorative aspect of handling the joint appropriately. And uh, th just thanks again. It was a great night. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys so much. I, it's always great to be with you guys. Well, we're, we, we think right, the same Jim. thing. All right. Thanks. All right. Great Good seeing night. you guys. Be well, my Good friend. night, everybody. See thank you, you very much. Okay. Good night, everyone. And that wraps up another podcast for Dennis in the Know. On behalf of Dr. Jennifer Bell, Dr. Chad Duplantis, and myself, remember that we've got a great profession. So let's make it a great day, Dinks.